Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, host of Citizens Climate Radio. We highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. We do all this by hearing from some pretty surprising climate advocates. We feature politicians, preachers, and poets. Citizens Climate Radio is designed to inform you about the many ways people are addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Subscribe and listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at renourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. So I'm Steve Nesbitt. I'm a professor of meteorology and atmospheric sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where I've been at the last 16 years. And I focus on understanding extreme weather processes in the atmosphere and how they relate to weather and climate around the world. And you can learn more about my research at swnesbitt.com. That was Stephen Nesbitt. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. That's also where I work. He's a colleague of mine that I met a number of years ago, and I invited him to one of my design classes probably around in 2016 or so. Uh, He came as an expert to help out with a sustainability course I was teaching and As much as he educated the students on the topic of climate change, I think he also scared them just a little bit. Uh, He's always been a a gracious and um, friendly colleague, and I'm just happy that he had uh, an hour to uh, join me on this uh, program today. So um, one thing you will notice, though, unfortunately, is that uh, when we recorded this back in June, of 2022, uh, it just so happened that Steve and I share the same uh, internet provider, and they were doing some work that day on their system. So there's some moments of of Zoom lag, you know, that sort of hiccup in in the voices, and uh, so you'll hear that here and there. At some point during the recording, it actually completely dropped off um, through the magic of editing. Um, you won't hear that part, but you're going to hear a few hiccups. I apologize for that, but uh, I still think that this is a really good uh, discussion I had with Professor Stephen Nesbitt. Well, welcome, Steve. Uh, Thanks for uh, coming on the show. I'm excited to see you again. Uh, For my listeners, I have met Steve many times before, and uh, he's always been... um, a good person, always been someone who um, very uh, available and uh, willing to uh, lend his expertise. So thanks for coming on here, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I have a couple questions for you, as you know, right? So I wanted to get into um, a little bit about 
first you and what led you to the work that you're doing? Why did you get into climate? Why meteorology? Why all of that? Yeah, so you may, uh, for, for those of you that are in meteorology or have a meteorologist in their family, you find that a lot of people in our field tend to have a certain genetic disposition to the environment or meteorology. Uh, in, in the field, we call it uh, being a weather weenie. And, a weather weenie? It turns out a weather weenie. <laughs> okay. So these are, these are people who, you know, you, you can find them. Uh, these are people, you know, for me, it was the kid who had a ring gauge in their backyard when they were four years old. Mm -hmm. uh, just people who, for some reason, the weather just clicks to them. And they're in, they're kind of, have this sort of sense of connection with, with what's going on in the daily weather or climate. Uh, well, these people actually end up going into culture, believe it or not, I think, and, and or they end up becoming a, I mean, a meteorologist or a climate scientist. Um, and you'll find a lot of us out there uh, in, in that disposition. So for some reason, I think there's this, this natural human connection to our environment. And, and for those of us who for whatever reason, got interested in the challenge of predicting things like weather and climate. This was just a career that kind of uh, became natural to us. Um, so for me, I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York, a uh, place which is kind of infamous for its severe uh, snowstorms that happened. Snowstorm. I was going to say snowstorms. Yes. So it, for us, it was always the challenge of how much is it going to snow <laughs> and uh, was school going to be closed the next day? So oh, snow days. Some, you know, yeah. snow days, right? Yes. So for those of us that got to have snow days, I guess our kids will not necessarily have them going no. forward with virtual schooling, which it's is a shame. terrible. Yeah. We, you know, it, would, it was always that challenge, like, well, you know, how much was it going to snow and why? So, mm -hmm. so I got into that when I was a kid and uh, I, you know, started out, you know, people our age, you know, we kind of got to the be teenagers and the weather channel became a thing on cable which kind of just fed the beast if you will and uh <laughs> are there, we both gen are we both gen x is that yeah i think so yeah, yeah i think, I think so, so. Yeah. so you know we grew up with cable and, and the weather channel was always one of the you know 26 channels you could get <laughs> right i remember those days yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for, during that time, the weather channel was just wall to wall weather, they would cover extreme events all over the country, hurricanes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tornadoes, they'd be live wherever. And that, that just became something that was a real interest to me. And, you know, it wasn't until high school that I really understood, you know, taking an earth science class that this was actually a career where you could do right. more than just be on TV. <laughs> Uh, because you can probably tell with this interview, I'm not somebody who would be very good on TV, <laughs> but, uh, research, you know, became an option and, and teaching and, uh, you know, that kind of made up my mind that I either wanted to become a, a kind of behind the scenes forecaster, mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, somebody who does the research and, and, uh, as college went on, it became clear that I could, could handle the research and computing aspects of things. And, uh, the, the rest is history. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so, here we are, right. the pinnacle of your here career right here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's interesting, you know, once I got into academia, you know, you, you really, 
benefit from having good mentors. Mm -hmm. And um, I was fortunate uh, that I was taken under the wing of a, a, a senior scientist who was basically one of the um, most decorated person, people who does uh, observational meteorology out in the field. Yeah. So, so his name was, is Ed Zipser. He's, he's now mostly retired, but uh, he just celebrated more than 50 years in doing observational oh meteorology was one of the first people to take instrumentation out to the tropics and measure a lot of the climate relevant uh, processes that are going on in remote areas, you know, after World War II. And uh, it became, you know, I've got under his wing and got the opportunity to do these kind of things and actually mm -hmm. go observe the weather all over the world. And, and I've been involved in, I think, 22 field campaigns over my career all over on five continents. You know, so it's oh, wow. just been okay. amazing to go out and, and actually take measurements of the phenomenon that comprise what our climate system is, you know, you so, so that's what, that's what I do. I basically go out and look at the, that drive weather and climate around the world. Now you, just for full transparency, you've been in my class before you, you came mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago and uh, you shared with my students who were working on a design and I think ethics project, probably um, a really focused presentation about your work, which I actually learned a lot about. W would you mind telling that again? Like your work with clouds. Mm -hmm. um, I think you said you were doing a lot of work in Mexico with this. Yeah, yeah. So I've done work in Mexico and recently we did a big project in Argentina. Uh, which is a place where clouds really drive extreme fluctuations in weather, uh, and that's all related to you know the long-term climate and and eventually you know how climate change will impact that region, which is a really important uh, breadbasket of the world. You know, so yeah. so clouds are really kind of the you know the lens that controls how the sun interacts with. Uh, land surface and the ocean mm -hmm. so so they, they kind of act as a as a mostly a cooling shade for us you know they reflect a lot of this incoming solar radiation therefore if if the cloud cover ends up changing with a changing climate that could actually you know turn up a thermostat on on the earth's climate system and, and wow. in addition of course it's where water is delivered to land right so the, mm -hmm. the oceans drive the water cycle water vapor comes over the land and the clouds are the agents that actually dump the precipitation on land. So I remember in, in when you were talking with my students, this is something I didn't know. Uh, based on what you were just saying, like the clouds that are like lower, closer to the land, they're more important mm -hmm. for blocking than, than the higher. Did I remember that right? Yeah, that's correct. You're spot on. So, um, see, I so learned low, you, you yeah, taught yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The low, the low clouds. I mean, these are the clouds. If you look at a satellite picture, they comprise, you know, a very high fraction of the cloud cover on the on the planet. You know, mm -hmm. especially if you live in Seattle, you know this. Uh, they're all right. There. Yeah, but uh, they extend all the way offshore over the Pacific Ocean. You know, a lot of the cooler ocean areas they're covered with these clouds, and uh, so. That, that reflection piece that I talked about, that is what the, basically these cold, these 
sorry, these warm clouds that are low mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. These are the ones that are very responsible for that uh, reflection, but then they're also sensitive to changes in temperature. Mm. So as the climate warms, there's a lot of research now that's showing that these clouds are going to start to be frequent, and that would lead to a, a feedback, we call it. The feedback. Where, right. So as you warm, you decrease these clouds, and it leads to a contribution to, to more warming, which is something so we don't want to have happen. That sounds like things get worse, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when yep. listening to this program, uh, respect those low-lying clouds <laughs> that are out there. They're, yeah, they're very helpful. Yeah, the, yeah, when you have that cloud in the summertime and you're like, darn it, I wish it was hot and sunny. You know, actually, those are keeping the climate system cool when they happen. Is is it that you're seeing in, in a specific part of the world that's already happening, that these clouds are dissipating? Yeah, there's some evidence in the observational record that often the west coast of north america kind of off wow. the southwestern part of california that there's some evidence that those clouds are decreasing already and uh we'll, we'll maybe see that going forward so with that work with um the work that you're doing in specifics uh have you thought about how that can be how that story can be told better than than it is being told right now because i imagine a lot of people listening to the show they don't know that, but it seems to be pretty common knowledge for, for most climate scientists. Yeah, this is the grand challenge, right? Because ultimately, the, our scientific results are going to inform policy. And right. Policy gets involved in politics. <laughs> and unfortunately, we end up with kind of mixed messaging when, when you start making that transition. Because... You know, obviously, we we can't write down equations in front of the general public and you know go through our <laughs> a typical... bunch of math on the screen. Yeah, never right? works. That's never... Not going to work. Doesn't even work in our talks, right? <laughs> so, so it's one of those things where we have to try to make those connections. And you know, we as scientists, we published the IPCC report to try to make a statement for policyholders uh, or policymakers, excuse me, to to have those documents where they can have a scientific basis to write policy on. Mm -hmm. Of course, the way Washington works is that you have experts and think tanks who further sort of con contort this into a policy. Right. Right. And then you have the public sphere of debate, <laughs> which of course, you know, politicians are maybe listening to, or maybe not. So, right. So as a scientist sitting kind of at the bottom end of this pyramid of ultimately changing policy and, and informing things like the Paris climate accords, uh, it can be definitely a challenge. And, and I'd say, so. I, you know, so I think, you know, things that we can do obviously are do things like this and, and hopefully reach a broader audience mm -hmm. um, and, and try to, to, to convince those that, you know, maybe on the fence, although, of course, with the polarization that we have now, it's very difficult to to find the undecided voters, if you will, um, right? Because of the, the kind of the, the muddy waters that are out there when it comes to you know changing the opinions of people. Um, so, I, I think that that one aspect is just more communication. The other important aspect, of course, is trying to understand how extremes in climate and weather connect to the story of climate change. Yeah, that's important. Uh, 
right? Because people pay attention as you know, communities in, impacted by a hurricane or by a tornado or a flood or a drought, right? These are things that people actually feel. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the press, you know, also likes to use this as an opportunity uh, to, to kind of share these messages. Although the science usually is not very clear in mm. these particular cases uh, about attributing certain events to specific aspects of climate change. So the press will generalize as opposed to be right. very clear mm. and specific. Right. And the uh, analogy that I like to say is, you know, for example, if you're, if you're playing a, a gambling game and a dice is loaded, right right and climate change is certainly loading the dice for certain events you know you, it's hard to say uh for one specific roll of the dice that you won or lost that game because of that loaded dice right uh, the prob right the probabilities are shifting so in the long run if you roll the dice a thousand times yes you will be able to attribute the statistics of that outcome to that shift but for one event I mean, for example, you still may get a bullseye or not, but over the long run, we keep shooting those darts, good outcomes, right? So, so that nuance is hard to explain, I think. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's hard to directly make that causation. Uh, but there's some good visuals in your metaphor there, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, most of my listeners are in the world of visual right? That right. We, make, we make things that are visual. So I, I think there's some opportunities with, with collaboration here where mm -hmm. I invited you to my class, right? Someone at another university can call up their resident uh, climate scientists into their class. Uh, there's usually more than one, but um, working with that sort of metaphor that you described is in my head, it's very visual, like loaded dice, playing darts, Mm -hmm. to help maybe tell the, this story um, or a series of stories uh, to, that, to the audience uh, that you want to reach. That audience part, I think, is really important because you mentioned you know, people on the political spectrum, usually on the right, um, are, would you say, less likely to be um, <laughs> believing in this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, different decisions that people make based on um, sort of personal risk that they assess and also their own vision of, of certain outcomes that that may mm -hmm. happen to them right and you know the other analogy that i like to think of is for example smoking right you know there's direct evidence that if you smoke there you have a very high risk of lung cancer right right but people still smoke that's I mean, true <laughs> people that's make true. that decision in light of incredible odds like you know, one out of five people are going to get lung cancer, I believe. Um, but for some reason, they continue to do it. And that's, that's how they decide to do it, right? And I'm not going to sit here and judge them uh, about that. But, uh, you know, th those are the kinds of things we have to deal with when, when politics are involved. I think people kind of lose sight of uh, maybe what they might expect the outcome to be. Uh, and, and it becomes a little bit more difficult to you know, when, once the whole complexity of the political spectrum uh, becomes very polarized, um, it becomes very difficult to kind of unplug certain issues. 
that way. And, and I think a lot of social science research shows that there's not, you know, you kind of lose the ability to, to make change once you've kind of politicized these things. Yeah, before we started recording, you mentioned you were getting hate mail or you got some hate mail or mean yeah, messages. Yeah, definitely some mean, mean social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I have not yet, so i um, crossing my fingers. But, I mean, I, I do you think that the people that are sending those, they could be bots, right? We're not sure, but um, is it worth still trying to to tell the story to those people who are in that category? Oh, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I, you know, even though you have the, the person that may be a troll bot or actually somebody who truly believes uh, that science is, is some sort of agenda. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> all, uh, you, all you wealthy scientists. Yeah, yeah, are... yeah. We're, we're definitely, you know, being, you know, we're on Putin's paycheck and, and <laughs> all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, this is, uh, you know, it's a challenge, but the, the, the halo effect is, you know, if the arguments are out there in public, people can read them. And, and if they are seeking reason, they should be able to see, you know, who's on what side here uh, and, and get through the rhetoric of, you know, seeing, you know, why do people really oppose the idea of, mm-hmm know doing some very relatively minor things to potentially save the planet um you know the 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 idea that we can just continue to do what we've done forever is not really backed up by any sort of human history um true you know we've faced a lot of challenges as a human race and our species is adapted uh we've fortunately been in a period in the last couple hundred years where we've had very stable climate We've had very plentiful energy, uh, and that's borne out to be a lot of success in, in extending human life, and, and it's all great. Uh, but that doesn't mean that any change is necessarily going to reverse all that. And I think people right. are scared, right? They're scared. Change is hard. That, yeah, they're scared that if I can't, you know, drive my huge pickup truck at 80 miles an hour whenever I want, then somehow my life's going to get worse. <laughs> right. I, I just don't see that. So, so I think that technology is going to save us in the end, uh, which is good. Uh, but it's also going to take some political will to say, okay, well, let's think about what's sensible here uh, mm-hmm. and make some reasoned decisions. That statement about technology will save us. Is there, um, is there something you know that we don't? Or, or is there some technology that you're um, excited about that you think will be a big factor here. Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing solar wind and I know nuclear is controversial, but you know, for example, in the state of Illinois where we reside, you know, the majority of electricity is, is generated by those three sources. That's good to hear. Right. So yeah, certainly possible already to do this. Um, And so I think, you know, we can, we can push in those directions and, you know, the idea that distributed solar is, is taking on huge parts of, you know, electricity market. Now you see it popping up all, everywhere. Can you define uh, that for me? Distributed solar? Yeah. Distributed solar is where you have solar panels on your own house 
uh and oh, okay you know and, and you can take the that energy directly uh also we're seeing solar farms developing and and the price and efficiency of solar is really becoming to the point where it's cheaper even than nuclear energy uh, and we've seen that i've nearby read that yeah. here um they you know they've threatened to shut down our nearby nuclear plant because it's not cost effective anymore mm -hmm. um so uh, that's all good news. And, and also society has become a lot more efficient. Um, you know, some of that's because of past energy crises, but also because of technology uh, and better building practices. And as we go forward, that's all going to continue. Um, so the good news is that we're, we're headed in the right direction. We're not headed fast enough in that direction yet. Okay. Uh, but I think we, we can get there as long as we have the political will to, to get there. And, and I think, you know, as we go through this energy crisis, perhaps one good outcome could be that those decisions become a little bit more towards the forefront. Yeah, because it does seem by all the press releases that I'm reading about car companies by X year, we're going to have our entire fleet being electric, even some of the pickup trucks, right, that you mentioned. Right. Ford, I think, this is not a commercial for Ford, but they're coming out with one next year, I believe. There's several companies that are developing new electric vehicles and trucks. Um, you know, there's a lot of work in the, the marine industry to make shipping more green by changing the fuel mixtures. Uh, and also, you know, the industry uh, is going to be another big challenge. But, you know, these are things that we can work on. We need to obviously do this here, but we also need to do this around the world and make sure that all the developing countries follow a greener path than we did when we uh, became uh, industrialized. You know, so, so making sure this technology is licensable and, and available around the world so that we can uh, have a greener future. Well, on that hopeful thought, um, we're going to take a few moments uh, to hear some messages from our sponsors. Most of us know what we need to do to help the planet, like more solar, trees and more bicycles. But even the best of us can get pretty stuck with figuring out how we motivate and inspire millions of people and governments around the world to adopt change. But there is a way. My name is Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer, a designer, and an author. And I interview expert PhD researchers from top universities around the world, like MIT, Harvard, and Stanford, about the psychology of environmental action. And I put these interviews out on my podcast called How to Save the World. I'm inviting you to join me on this wild intellectual journey into the heart of the environmental psyche so that we can unearth these fascinating and critical teachings we can use in our climate campaigns, programs, designs, and startups. You can find my podcast, How to Save the World, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and at anchor.fm forward slash Katie Patrick. Okay, we're, we're back, Steve. Uh, I wanted to get into some, some more meaty, although that what we talked about before was pretty meaty, but meaty for designers uh, questions. Um, one of the themes this year, on this season, I should say, is about the story of climate change, the concept of rebranding it or retelling that story and how designers can be 
part of that. Uh, I sent you all these questions before, so you've had some time to think about it, but have you thought about that even in your own work and with, with the work that you do, how you could tell that story better, how someone like me or people listening to the show from a design perspective could help you just get your story more clear to um, more, more, more ears, more eyes. Yeah, no, th this is a really good question. And, and thank you. It, yeah, it, go, it goes out <laughs> to, you know, how, how our work can be more impactful um, mm -hmm. and, and, and how climate really kind of hit the road uh, in terms of how people make choices, uh, what's appealing and, and really impacts a lot of the, you know, the basic culture of, of our nation and, and the world, you know, for a long time, you know, we've had this vision, you know, since the post-World War II era of how urban uh, versus suburban uh, lifestyles mm -hmm. are appealing to people. Um, and, and, you know, the science tells us that low density development, for example, is very bad for climate, uh, because it requires more transportation and it's also not good for our health, you know? So, so I think where design can come in is try to make spaces for people to be more comfortable sort of in the, um, in that urban space, the high density space so that we can reach some of these climate goals. Um, mm -hmm. You know, technology can only get us so far, but the basic idea of transporting everybody around, um, you know, hundreds of miles per week uh, is, is really not gonna work no matter what we do, right? So, so how, better how do urban we, planning, right? Right, better so how do, we take, how do we take spaces and make them more appealing in that urban, uh, sort of framework for people to be able to live in those spaces. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's sort of, in terms of sustainability goals, we're gonna have to get there. Uh, and so how do we make that appealing to people? Um, obviously the other part of it is housing supply, uh, right. but, but, but people need to make those choices in order for the market to be able to support uh, people to live in those spaces. So, so, so urban planning, I think is part of it. Um, and, and telling that story effectively to people about, you know, that maybe the choice of, of living out, you know, tens or, you know, even 50 miles from where you work or where you go to school is not going to be all that great. <laughs> being, being a hermit out on a farm somewhere maybe isn't the best for climate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as long as you stay out there, it's fine, but. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Are, driving yeah, into work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're driving long distance. Commuting. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, part of it. Also, I mean, a lot of the reason I think people see that as appealing is they have this idea that somehow, um, you know, education and 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 uh, cost of living will be lower. But cost of living I, might be, but education. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you, you if know. you add up all the costs of, of transportation, I don't think it really is. I mean, it's we, true. You know. It, it just depends on how you want to spend your money. Um, so, so I think uh, and really making the urban space seem desirable to people, I think is, is a big challenge for mm -hmm. in the big cities in the US, you know, you have New York who will scrump up, uh, uh, you know, 
a fantastic place to live. You have everything right around you. Uh, and certainly, you know, that's, that's a, that's a lifestyle that that's great, but what do you do in, in your medium sized cities? Right. Right. So where you don't have, you know, all the, the, the entertainment and, and park space and greenery and everything else that you have in a place like New York. So, mm -hmm. um, so how do you, how do you do that? How do you take places like Houston and, and, and kind of flip the script and, and turn a kind of a bedroom downtown into a place where people want to have an, a vibrant urban center? Yeah. Cause living more vertically is from a climate perspective, better than living spread out horizontally that that's what I remember hearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, I mean, it's, it's, uh, saves not only just transportation, but also energy distribution, everything else, you know, it, it's kind of a exponential effect that if you can, you know, people in New York city use a much, much lower carbon footprint than, than mm -hmm. people, uh, in the rest of the world. And, uh, if you think about Canada, for example, we think, oh, Canada's you know more progressive and so forth, but they have actually more carbon challenges than we do because their really? urban centers are very spread out. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so they, you know, it's just a whether you're commuting long distances and 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 you know live in a single family house where all the energy that you're using to heat your and cool your place is all right there, and you lose it all. Well, it does sound like there's some opportunities here also from awareness for policymakers to think about, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about living in Chicago because that's close to us. I don't think I could afford it. Right. I mean, on my right. salary here, I mean, uh, design educators like climate educators don't make, don't make uh, gobs of money, but it sounds like there's an opportunity here for awareness to policymakers about um, cost of living adjustments to encourage people to think about moving to the city. Right. Cause I mean, it, it, it goes into a lot of our policy, right? We, we all buy single family homes primarily because it's, uh, you know, we get, get a huge tax, uh, exactly incentive, right. To do so. So, uh, you know, how does, how does our tax system, uh, in terms of space that we live in relate to climate goals? You know, and I think there are some proposals out there to think about how we might, you know, change that. I've heard about a land tax where you, instead of taxing the building on land, you actually tax just the land. Right. And, and that would encourage, you know, return of land to, you know, agriculture or, or native space rather than uh, building That's out parking lots, you know, out for. Yeah, for sure. And if you had a big vertical condo building, the actual footprint of the land is fairly small. So you divide that up by hundreds of inhabitants and the taxes are much lower. Right, right. So, so it just depends on how we want to prioritize, you know, the, the, you know, within our tax system and how that relates to our climate goals. Oh, okay. Well, I'm wondering too, then, um, still on the design track here if this question i asked to everyone and that is if you were in my shoes you're you're teaching a design course you're in a design educator's shoes uh what what would you do as a as a project or or a class um connected to your work like it, it could be your dream <laughs> dream scenario 
Yeah. So, so another aspect we, we didn't really think of, and it kind of relates to urban design, but also kind of architecture is, you know, how do we build climate resilient communities mm. from an urban design or from a design standpoint? And, and there's another area of our research, which is done. Uh, there's some research on our campus in the civil engineering department about how we design buildings, not only just their sort of structure, but also their distribution uh, and how that relates to resilience to weather and climate extremes. You know? So for example, um, if you have really uniform space buildings uh, that are relatively close together, it turns out that that sort of mitigates the effects of tornadoes on, on, no. the, on the design because you can't build up really strong winds and in, in the distribution you know, between those buildings. So, so Kansas would love this. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But even here, you know, in the in the Illinois, uh, where we, we do see this, you know, there's a there's a severe tornado that went through the suburbs of Chicago recently, uh, about two years ago, 2020. Yeah, I think you're right. I and, remember reading about and, that. Uh, you know, it turns out that if you look in in where we have cul-de-sacs in urban environments, those are terrible because you've got one house sitting at the end of this huge canyon of 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 wind between the houses. It's like a wind tunnel. Like a wind tunnel. And, you know, even though cul-de-sacs are nice and private, that house right on the end of the cul-de-sac they found was really statistically dangerous in terms of- You don't uh, want to buy that house. Yeah, you don't want to buy that house. <laughs> so, so under, you know, we used to design uh, houses, you know, neighborhoods with straight streets and, and mm -hmm. maybe gridded. And it turns out that that's much more resilient to strong winds um, because you don't that's have these high, high risk areas. So- so from a sort of a planning perspective, it's, it's interesting to think about how the environment and, and the um, sort of layout of homes or businesses within the city can, can be you know, resilient or not, depending on those designs. That's a cool um, project, like thinking yeah. about designing a climate resilient town from scratch. Yeah, yeah, what, what sort of you know, green space would you like to allow uh, you know, green space is really good for avoiding heat waves because it uh, reduces the amount of uh, the sun's energy that can go into sensible heat, which is what raises the temperature. Uh, so evaporating water is usually a good thing. Uh, so you, you want to have water and green space. Uh, but obviously, the more you put that in, the, the more transportation that you need to True. Uh, account for because you get lower density development. So some some people have talked about putting in like little canals even down each street where instead of routing like the, venice yeah right so instead of instead of routing stormwater underground you actually route it into little you know water channels that that's go through fun the cities. yeah and you could have little boating opportunities if you wanted to but um you know this can help make urban areas a lot more resilient to heat waves uh, which will probably be increasing in the future. So like, I agree. Yeah. Like right now yeah. we're in, it's a hundred degrees here in Illinois in June, which I think is a record for this early in the year. Yes. Yeah. So we'll be feeling it here in the next few days. And, you know, one of the reasons why it's going to be so hot is that the corn is not developed and it's also been dry. So mm. this is like the perfect storm of a heat wave is when you have a kind of a dry lead up and then you get, a lot of heat in the atmosphere. Just kind of as an aside to that, but connected, um, the Midwest where we are, right? What What is sort of like your 
in your research, like pre predicting forward about in particular the Midwest and the US for how it's going to change or adapt to climate? Yeah. So like I just mentioned, you know, the we all complain about how humid it is around here. Yes. Um, it, right. It it turns out that that is a great buffer for heat waves. So Good. if you look at the historical record, you know, a lot of the United States has warmed in the last century, but we have not. And a lot of the summertime extreme temperatures that they've experienced down in the Southern Plains mm -hmm. uh, have not uh, translated here because of the you know, hundreds of miles of, of developed agriculture that we have around here. So, so fortunately in, in the winter time, uh, you know, we, we've seen very, we've seen much warmer temperatures. That's, that's going to continue. And, mm -hmm. and that's really not kind of that great because it, it leads to problems with our ecosystems and pests and things like that. Um, but fortunately in the summertime, we should be in relatively good shape compared to other places in the country. The Midwest um, is best. Yeah. So Midwest and Great Lakes, if you look at kind of a ranking of climate resilience in the United States, we're, we're actually in decent shape here. Um, doesn't mean that we'll be, you know, experiencing more drought potentially mm -hmm. um, or heavy precipitation events. I think that's pretty clear that that's oh that that's still happens in the here. cards. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be in the cards for us, and it could increase. Those events could increase in the future, according to a lot of research. Although there's some uncertainty in that. Sure. But, but we, you know, from a design perspective, we need to think about, you know, how how these changes could impact our, you know, our our design landscape going forward, uh, and and how, you know how our choices that we make could, could probably feed back into that. And just to kind of the final thing on that question, we're working on a project in Chicago to kind of optimize some of these things. So in, in Chicago, obviously we have huge inequities in terms of social uh, sort of status in different regions. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of asking the question about how, what we could do to kind of retrofit Chicago to make climate outcomes more equitable right mm -hmm. and it, it turns That's out important right there's a there's a lot of overlap between where the worst heat waves are where the worst flooding is and where unfortunately the socioeconomic status is is challenged the most and, and race so, and socioeconomics right, are most affected. right so you know one could argue that that was accidental or or not, but, but it's it the probably was not have. based on yeah. the history I've read. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the stat, the, you know, the state of the, the current situation is that this is the reality. So, so how could we go in and change that? And, and so, you know, our green roofs, uh, you know, and planting more trees in certain neighborhoods, mm -hmm. paving, you know, digging up parking lots and, and urban sort of wastelands that have been paved around factories that are no longer in use, you know, can that have an actual measurable impact on these things? Um, and also when we do that, what benefits do we see for human health? And so hopefully within the next five years, we'll have the answer to some of those questions with our project. I hope so. Yeah. We have clocks ticking right on all of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's important, right. In your project and in any project that designers undertake to include 
as many voices as as we can mm -hmm. and speaking to those communities in Chicago that are most affected. I mean, they probably know they're affected, but they may not know everything about how and why they're affected. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're engaging um, some of the the neighborhoods in, in kind of the south side and west side of Chicago. And we have community leaders that have given us uh, much, very much the rundown of, of how they're affected by extreme events and wow. what that means for, you know, their day-to-day -day lives in terms of, you know, just the effects of flooding and the aftermath on, um, you know, disease, you know, e even in the United States, you know, there are regions where, you know, water quality uh, and, you know, flooding of public spaces and, and even homes lead to things like mold and, and uh, oh, yeah. you know, other insect-borne diseases. And so if we can hopefully mitigate some of those things um, under this, you know, sort of the idea that these events could be more frequent in the future, I think will help us uh, with policies. Is there, is this particular project um, online anywhere like in progress or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in the proposal stage right now, but uh, it's called Crocus and, and there's a website that uh, I think people can go to, um, but it's, it's one of the Department of Crocus, Energy. Crocus, C-R-O-C-U-S. Mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, people uh, can learn a little bit more about it. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, Department of Energy is funding a lot of these urban uh, sort of energy climate uh, interaction uh, studies and hopefully ours is selected, but uh, we'll, hope we'll so. hopefully get it funded either, you know, one of these ways because it's a really important problem for Chicago. And you might need some design help. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Steve. This has been um, a very educational conversation for me. I learned a lot about not only the work you do, but just basic climate stuff. Uh, I obviously learned a lot when you came to my class. So that's sort of my message for the listeners is invite Steve or other um, climate scientists on your campus to to your classroom. Uh, Steve, where can we find you again online before we depart today? Yeah, you can find me at my website at swnesbit.com or on Twitter at 70 underscore dbz, which is a very extreme radar echo for a storm. <laughs> Well, thanks, Steve. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, and I, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. This podcast is written, produced, and engineered by me. Designed by Bashul Rashik and Mark O'Brien, with music by Casual Motive. Next week on Climify, we're joined by Gabrielle Marit, the perfect blend of environmental scientist and data visualization designer. I was always interested in science and that's definitely part of the science field, but also I was raised in the countryside. And so I had this appetite for, you know, trees and we always have animals. And I was, I became vegetarian quite early on because when you see the animals you're about to eat and you grow up with them, you have this different approach. So I think there was this education around respect of nature and connection to nature. And also when it comes to data, there's not, I mean, there's, plenty of data, but I was mm. interested in data that connects to human beings and really when it comes to climate, um, it's really just the emergency of the century. So it's like, it's everywhere. You cannot talk right. about anything without talking about climate.
So I think this is how that's how it worked out. So it was a lot of yeah. work involved climate science. Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.